Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43. Page 811 in your pew Bibles. The goodness of God is far beyond all comprehension. For most of us, when it comes to loving our enemies, we would rather ride a skateboard down Queens Boulevard with blindfolds on than love our enemies. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about biblical love, not mental assent, not loving them from a distance, but in practical and sacrificial ways. And I think we would see it differently if we thought about the moral aspect of love as opposed to the love that comes from personal affection. Moral love is just a care or a concern for another human being who's made in the image of God. It's a love based on the will rather than emotion. Love that comes from personal affection, on the other hand, is that emotional love and is based on how good you feel towards another person. If we don't understand the difference between the moral love that God displays towards mankind that is just a showing of goodwill and the love God displays for his redeemed children that's driven by an intimate personal affection for them, then we may be slow to imitate his goodwill love towards our enemies. For today's sermon, we'll spend most of our time focusing on the goodwill aspect of God's love because that's what our text calls us to possess within ourselves if we're going to call ourselves children of God. Now there are three uh, uh, points or parts to this sermon uh, that I have for you today. And point number one is the heart of the Christian. The heart of the Christian. Point number two is the habit of the Christian. And point number three is the highest height of the Christian. So, let me read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Then we'll dig in. Matthew chapter 5, once again, verses 43 to 48. This is the holy word of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's take a moment to go before our Father. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come under your word. What a blessing it is, Lord, to know what is true. Your word is true, Lord. May we be obedient 
May we be attentive. May we be changed. And I ask you by your spirit to work in me, Lord, that I would be clear, uh, that I would be concise even on many or certain points, Lord. Please use me to bless your people, to feed your sheep. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Part one, the heart of the Christian. The heart of the Christian is to love his or her enemy. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, just before he began saying, you have heard, but I say to you, in verse 20, he stressed, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he tells them, and us how to do that by revealing the true meaning behind various laws, by saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, thus to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is to act from pure motives of the heart, rather than showing uh, uh, these shallow motives uh, that are within you that produce shallow external deeds that people can see through, if not immediately, then eventually. If you remember, Jesus taught nothing new about the act of murder, but he instructs his followers to remove the motive, which is anger. That's what leads to murder. Also, he says nothing new about the act of adultery, but he tells husbands how to love their wives and avoid divorce by bringing up lust and the passions within that lead to adultery. He also shows us how to speak truth to our neighbors by letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Then, just when you think it couldn't possibly get any harder to be righteous in God's sight, Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer him the other one also. Why? For the glory of God and the salvation of others. Thank God we're saved by grace. Thank God we're saved by grace. Because all of those commands are the desires a child of God should have. Even if we don't do them perfectly. But none of those commands, not one, will even be attempted if this next one is ignored. Because Jesus now commands that we are to love our enemies. Here, the original word uh, used for love is the word agapato. It means to love in a sense of showing goodwill. The Lord reminds me of a good fitness trainer, right? Just when you think you have done enough and you've reached this limit and you should be proud, he puts on more weight. He adds more weight to the bar. But doing good and showing practical, moral love to your enemy shows the world you belong to God. This is not a new idea that was only given after the new covenant was established. In Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 to 22, Solomon gave a word that the apostle Paul would use for the church roughly a thousand years later. He wrote, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. 
This is similar to what we covered at the end of the, the Beatitudes, if you remember. In verses 11 to 12 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If only we were able to look past the present circumstance, situation, and pain to see the future reward, then I believe we would be able to handle situations better, even to the point of rejoicing that we are worthy to face what's happening as God is carrying us through these things. You're not making it on your own, and we rejoice because we know we would melt, we would say things that are fleshly, and we would respond in a way that would make others say, oh, I thought you were a Christian. You're fake. You're a hypocrite. Don't even ask me to come to your church anymore. I can behave like you on my own. Perhaps we would even be able to love our enemies as Christ is calling us to love them if we recognize this type of love is not about feelings. It's not about hearts and chocolates on Valentine's Day and that I always have to have this mushy, gushy feeling towards you, but it's about the moral goodwill love, care, concern, and practical help when someone is in need, even someone who's acting out against you. That's Christ-like. It's foreign to our world. It's strange to our flesh, but that's what God does. That's what God does for us. Maybe it will shame them. Maybe they'll uh, seek to make peace, as Proverbs 16, uh, verse 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. But more importantly, when you do good to those who are against you, your reward comes from the Lord. And as Christians, that should matter to us. That should mean something. If what I am doing blesses the Lord and he blesses me on top of how he already blessed me. When the Jews taught, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, we can find the first part of this statement in Leviticus chapter 19, uh, verse 18. But the second part, Commanding them to hate their enemy is nowhere found in Scripture. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Unfortunately, many people then and now take those words, your own people and neighbor. And they say, these are my neighbors, these are my own people, and it produces this apathy, this us against them, and it is totally against the scriptures and against our God. The Jews narrowly interpreted who their neighbor was because they didn't understand who their neighbor was. This is why Jesus starts out by saying, you have heard that it was said. 
so that over the centuries, it was this mindset uh, uh, and it was a man-centered uh, mindset that, that, that focused on their traditions and created these incredibly fleshly ways and caused an uncaused hatred for anyone who wasn't in their, even in their own small sect of Judaism. So this helps us to understand the question that came from the lawyer in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me for a moment. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. If you remember, a lawyer came up to Jesus trying to test him. So Luke 10, 25 and beyond says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's the million dollar question. Not knowing the answer to that question has helped to create this dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. But let me continue. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now remember, the priest and the Levite both worked in the temple. The priest and the Levite were supposed to be compassionate to the unfortunate. But here is this Samaritan in Jesus' story, a rejected, despised half-breed, according to the Jews. And the story says, as this man journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Who is your neighbor? Anyone you come across who needs you to show them mercy. When Jesus answered the lawyer's question by telling him the parable of the Good Samaritan, he extended the borders of who the Jews considered to be their neighbor. Now to say the Samaritans and the Jews uh, uh, weren't friends is, 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 is a major understatement. They considered themselves enemies. From the Jewish perspective, it was a natural jump to read Leviticus 19.18's You shall love your neighbor as yourself and then insert and hate your enemy. Especially when certain Bible passages show some heroes of the faith 
hating God's enemies. This was perceived as a reason why they should also hate God's enemies. King David rejoiced in God's judgment on those who hated God and his people. In Psalm 139, David wrote, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Then in Psalm 69, David prays and asks God to pour out his indignation upon them and for his burning anger to overtake them. He wrote, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. David is asking God to kill them, to remove them from the land of the living. Many Jews and some Christians say, aha, that gives us the right to hate the wicked. Not so fast. If we are to say, we as Christians have a right to hate the wicked, violent, and proud based on David's words, then we have a problem with Jesus' command to love your enemies. For those of us who, who find tension or even a contradiction between these two thoughts from Scripture, we need to learn from God. This takes both looking at God's works and listening to what he and his son says. Looking at God's works and listening to what both the father and the son says. Looking at his works. Our text tells us he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The almighty God of the universe, who can crush the mightiest nation with one word, looks down from heaven, where he sits on his throne, observing all the deeds of man, and still blesses them. We, who sin daily against God and man, with the smallest amount of knowledge, believe we have the right to hate someone that we believe is more evil than us. Yet, we see people that don't believe even wicked people being blessed by God, whether directly or indirectly, ordained or allowed, no one is blessed apart from God's sovereign rule. If we refuse to look at his works, can we at least listen to what the father and the son said? The father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The son said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We have the visual of the Father's works before us every day, plus the command from both the Father and the Son. Listen to the Son. Love your enemies. In the case of David or anyone in the Bible hating their enemies except Jesus, because he can do that, we must test whether their words or actions are things we should imitate. We always follow the imperatives and moral commands aimed at God's people over the actions and words from people within a historical narrative. For example, Moses was a godly man, but in his understandable anger, he told the people, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then he struck the rock twice. But he paid severely for those words and his actions. In our understandable moments of anger, we don't follow Moses. 
We always follow the imperatives and moral commands over the actions and words of even the most godliest people we read about in the Bible. Abraham was a man of great faith, yet he lied twice and told his wife to support the lie. Job was called blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. In the early stages of his suffering, when you go to chapters 1 and, and 2 at the end, Job is said to have not sinned by charging God with wrong. But by the time he gets further along in his suffering, his tone begins to change. In Job chapter 30, verses 19 uh, to 21, he said, God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Now I believe he's charging God with wrong. This may be why in chapter 42, before he is restored, he repents by saying, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There are great dangers in taking the words of people, even righteous people in the Bible not understanding their context, and then applying their words to how all believers should think, speak, or act. Imagine someone being uh, so distressed by their sorrows that they take some of the words of Job and apply it to their situation and how they should feel. When Job was in the midst of his suffering, he said, curse that night for letting me be born for exposing me to trouble and grief. I wish I had died in my mother's womb or died the moment I was born. Looking at God's works and listening to what the Father and the Son says helps to clear up any apparent contradiction between the scriptures where God's people are seen hating their enemies in one place but commanded to love their enemies in another. God is the only one who can both love and hate to perfection because he's God. He's the only one who can hate without sinful intent. That's a real hard line for us not to cross. It's not hard for God. Rather than destroying every person the moment he or she sins because all have sinned and fall short, God gloriously and graciously holds back his judgment. To maintain awareness of God's mercy and compassion and then respond in like manner to our enemies takes prayer. Which brings us to the second part of this sermon. The habit of the Christian. The habit of the Christian is to pray for his or her enemies. To pray for his or her enemies. For those of us who have received eternal salvation, we know God's goodness personally. So one of the first ways a child of God reflects their relationship with God is by prayer. Praising him in prayer, giving thanks in prayer, and asking God to supply your needs. 
Some of the fathers right here can testify that their children have no problem asking them for money whenever they're in need or the way they think they're in need, right? No praise, hardly any thank yous, but many requests for their needs. It's just a natural transaction between father and child. Likewise, we should make our requests to God frequently, believing he has our best interest at heart in accordance with his will. In this case, Jesus says we should stay praying for our persecutors, the evil, the ones who seem like they want to hurt you, the ones who act like they don't care what you've done for them. We should stay praying for them, even those that we somehow think are more evil than us. And that's one thing for me uh, to heart. It's, it's hard for me to understand um, how many of us have this, at least I'm not and never was as bad as them. I truly believe this contributes to our lack of compassion for the wicked. Think about something. When Nathan, the prophet Nathan, began telling David, King David, about a rich man with many sheep and lambs who had taken the only little lamb some poor man possessed, David's blood began to boil. Then Nathan continued. He told David, this poor man loved this lamb. She was like a daughter to him. But the rich man didn't care. He slaughtered the lamb and fed her to his friend. David was so angry that he was ready to destroy the rich man. He told Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan told David, you are the man. David, the rich king, who already had two wives, had taken Bathsheba, the only wife of Uriah, a poor man compared to David, a, a, a poor man who was faithful to the king's army and to the king. When David prayed for God to slay the wicked, his own wicked actions were the farthest thing from his mind. What if Uriah Bathsheba's husband had known King David laid with his wife and was planning to murder him. Should he have stored up hatred in his heart for David and prayed that God would slay him for treating him like an enemy? These are the questions we have to wrestle with if we're going to follow the words of David and disobey the authority, authoritative command from Jesus to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. If you are a child of God, then you're ordered by the Lord to pray for your persecutors. This is what a Christian looks like. This is what separates us from the world. This is someone who recognizes where he or she was in life. We didn't deserve mercy. We didn't deserve anything from God but death and hell. And in our wickedness, while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. He gave up his life and he said, whatever your name is, I'm staying here for you. There are those in our past who performed the habit 
of Christians. They prayed for you. Some of you know them. Some of you don't know the people who prayed for you. But somebody prayed for you. We were in darkness. We didn't know God. But God said, okay, okay, let me reach into their heart and turn their hearts. Let me place my laws within them so that there will be this change where they want me. While you were in your sin, he didn't wait for you to clean yourself up because you never would. If we admit sin for a short time, for a moment, can be fun, quote unquote fun, but God says you're killing yourself. Sin equates death. And I'm trying to give you life. Come to me. Learn of me. Think of how many of our mothers or our fathers prayed for us when we were running astray and living in sin. Think of how often you as parents have prayed for your unsaved children. What if, what if, and I want you to think about this, what if instead of being faithful and following Jesus' command, all believers chose to treat all people the way they deserve to be treated? No grace. That equates to no prayer. Here's the thing. We want grace. We recognize we need grace. But this person? No. I'm not giving them any grace because of what they did to me. Just like David in Psalm 139, Psalm 69. Get them, Lord. I hate them, Lord. With a, a perfect hatred. Impossible. Impossible. Only God can do that. If there was a mandate that you cannot pray for anyone, I believe that parents would still pray for their children. And saved children would still pray for their parents. And why is that? Because they actually believe that prayer changes things and people. Deep down, they really believe that, ch that, 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 that change will come if I pray. Now, here's the thing. Once you make that jump, because you really believe that prayer will change things, why is it so hard to pray for the enemy so that he will no longer be your enemy? Secondary, that's secondary. The first thing is I'm praying for my enemy so that he would be saved and not be an enemy against God. If I really believe prayer works, I would pray for them. This is what Jesus is saying. Pray for them who persecute you, that they would flip and change. And I would work in them by my spirit because they're no longer my enemy. I would save them. And as they read my word, they would see that they cannot possibly persecute you because you both have the same father and then they may learn to love their enemies. That's the point. That's the purpose. The Apostle James tells us the prayers of a righteous man avails much. The Apostle Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. ceasing. And even King David said, let everyone who is godly pray to God. 
This is what the redeemed children of God do. We pray, and then we pray some more. We are to hate violence and wickedness, no doubt. Yet we are commanded to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Why? Once more, according to the text. It is so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven. If we refuse to pray for those who persecute us, what makes us any different from our neighbor who hates God? What makes us any different from those who are caught up in cults and false religions? Some cults pray more than Christians. They think their salvation is based on that, so they'll do the external act, but they're praying to somebody else because God isn't hearing them because they're evil and wicked and they have no relationship themselves. It's like some stranger coming to an unbeliever and saying, who should I pray to? And the stranger picks up a rock and say, here, this is what helped me. And you say, thank you. But the believer who has the real God, it's not this crazy faith in faith. It's faith in the one who is able to change a person's direction with one word. And we see that in John 17, this high priestly prayer, when he spends 19 verses praying for the disciples, and then he gets to verses 20 and 21 and says, not only do I pray for them, but I pray for all who hear their words. That's us. So if you don't know anybody who prayed for you, Jesus is the first one who prayed for you specifically. Not this big body or mass of people, but your name. And that makes a difference. That makes all the difference in the world. We pray for our enemies' salvation. We pray for our enemies' repentance and sanctification. We pray God would protect them from death even so that they won't end up in hell immediately. And God's goodness, which is beyond comprehension, he holds the unbeliever like this. That's the only reason they're still alive. He holds them like this. And I heard this from someone, I can't recall his name. But he holds them up like this. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He holds them up like this. And at any moment, at God's own choosing, when their life is over, he moves his hand. When their time is up, he moves his hand and they drop. All we know is some tragedy happened. Oh, he was so young, how could he get a heart attack? And we say, oh no, God wouldn't do that. But read, read your Bible closely. The wages of sin is death. Anytime someone is existing and sinning and God hasn't destroyed them yet, it's out of his goodness, his grace, his mercy, things that we cannot comprehend. But we pray for them. We pray God would turn them around. God doesn't act because of this great feeling of love for the evil and the unjust, but because he desires to show them grace and mercy for a time and for his purpose. So we pray and we pray and we pray, Lord, God, save them, turn them. They're sinning against me, but more importantly, they're sinning against you. This kind of prayer, this kind of care for the ungodly resembles 
the character of our Father, which brings us to point number three, the highest height of the Christian. The highest height of the Christian is to resemble his or her Father in heaven. It's to resemble his, his or her Father in heaven. As Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Walking in love as Christ loved us distinguishes us from unbelievers, especially when it comes to how we are commanded to love them or, or love differently than unbelievers. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Unfortunately, the world takes their cue or cues from people like the, the, the late Minnie Ripperton. She had a very popular song uh, uh, back in the day uh, called uh, uh, Loving You, right? Now it starts out by saying, loving you is easy. I was about to sing for a millisecond and I says, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not that courageous. But it says, loving you is easy because you're beautiful. And everything that I do is out of loving you. La, 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 la. Some of you know the song, right? That is not the way of the Christian. Everything we do, that we do, is based on our relationship with God. Our love for Jesus and his love for us. Because it is the love of Christ that controls us. Some translations in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 uh, says constrains us. So when someone isn't acting so beautiful, we still love them because not only are we made in the image of God and not only have we been redeemed by the blood of Christ, but we've been given the spirit of God, which gives us the ability to love the unlovable. The first fruit of the spirit listed is what? Love. The world doesn't have the spirit of God dwelling in them, so they rarely love those who don't love them and barely greet those who won't greet them. But when it comes to those who have been adopted into the family of God and sealed with his spirit, believers are able to do the things that the world hates to do. The consistent love the consistent care and concern for our enemies is one of the highest exhortations the Christian has been given. It has been given to us because we have been called to a higher place. 1 Peter 2.9, for you are chosen, a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. And then 1 John chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, encourages us by saying, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Also, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 instructs us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by uh, testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God for the Christian is to love our enemies, 
and pray for those who persecute us so we may look like him. This is the supreme evidence of ownership. I like the way James Boyce addressed this. He said, we were created to be like God, to aim at Christ-like character, and the only way we will be able to do this consistently is if God gives us a transformed heart, end quote. And here's the test. If this is impossible for you, impossible to, to, to even pray for someone, it's time to examine who am I? You have been given a new heart if you belong to Christ. The old person says, no, I, I can't do that. No, no, they, they hurt me too much. There's no way I can pray for them. The new person who has taken on God-likeness because of God's spirit says, I have to try. I have to try because the word tells me to. God has shown me mercy. I need to look like God because I have this desire to be like God, right? That should be the first desire, to be like God. So I have to try to pray for this person who has hurt me so bad. When God made us alive together, according to Ephesians chapter 2, he created in us a desire to be like him. So we yearn to attain that perfection even while knowing we'll never achieve it. This is what, what made the Apostle Paul uh, cry out, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7, 24. He struggled with the fact that nothing good dwelt within his flesh. That's a godly struggle. He had this intense desire to do what was right, but not the ability to carry it out consistently. The moral love and goodwill that Jesus is calling every Christian to can be seen even clearer in a similar discourse. I'm just going to read it for you. Right. Uh, Luke chapter six, verses 32 to 36 puts it this way. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This is a love based on actions First, if there are any feelings, it's always secondary. Feelings come and go. But this is the love that motivates a wife to respect her husband, even when every bone in her body doesn't feel like respecting him. Ephesians 5, verse 33. 
This is the consistent love that motivates a husband to love his wife, regardless of how much love he feels for his wife. If there's absolutely no feelings of love, scripture tells that husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5 and verse 25. This love isn't even based on situations or circumstances and what they may look like, right? When God sends rain, despite what the weatherman says it looks like, calling it bad weather, the Bible calls it God's gift to mankind. This rain is done out of God's goodwill towards mankind. We see that in Psalm 104, uh, verses 13 to 15, where the psalmist explains from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. God gifts and blesses the wicked every day. If we are going to imitate our Father in heaven, then we cannot only love those who love us and greet only our brothers and sisters in the faith. In verses 46 and 47 of Matthew 5, Jesus also said, even the tax collectors and unbelievers do that. Now, the tax collectors were despised uh, by the Jews because they collaborated with the Roman government. The taxes they collected actually helped to fund the Roman occupation of Israel. And to make matters worse, the tax collectors were able to add to those taxes extreme fees in order to make a profit. They were seen as evil. Yet, even if some of them were showed kindness, they would return to that person kindness. As far as the Gentiles, a.k.a. the unbelievers, who have no redemption in Christ, no eternal forgiveness, and no eternal relationship with God, they also would often return kindness for kindness. So if tax collectors and unbelievers return kindness for kindness, those who have been granted eternal life by the almighty king of the universe have to do more. There is nothing special when you do a favor for someone who favors you. And Jesus isn't telling us believers to do something in obedience to our father that he himself didn't do. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul tells us, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He did what for who? He died for the ungodly. He gave up his life. For the ungodly. Even though for our sake, God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin, the one who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, those words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse uh, 21 express the doctrines of imputation and substitution like no other single verse in the Bible. 
imputation is the righteousness of Christ accredited to our account and our sin accredited to Christ's account. So that Jesus received the full wrath of God the Father for our sin. And in exchange, in exchange, we were robed in all the goodness, purity, and righteousness of Christ. When Jesus received the full wrath of God the Father as our substitute, the Father treated him as if he committed our sins and now treats us as if we did the righteous deeds of Christ in his um, earthly obedience, in his active obedience upon the earth. And that is breathtakingly amazing to me. I hope you grasp that. I hope you uh, ponder that and say, wow, this God is amazing and I should love him with my everything and I need to change my speech, my thinking. I need to love those who I don't get along with. No, I need to love those that hate me. I need to pray for those who are against me. Why? Because God did it for you. I want to give a few more applications so that if you were daydreaming or, or, or sleeping and missed the several applications I've already given, uh, I have three more for you, just three more. Extra application number one, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice overwhelmingly whenever you're able to show practical love and mercy and to pray for those who are treating you as an enemy. If you are able to do that and look like Christ, don't weep. Don't, don't, don't uh, mourn and, and, and wallow in your despair. Oh, why me? No, rejoice. Because God says, now you're looking like me. Now you're showing that you belong to me. It's great evidence that you belong to God. What a transformation. Many of you know you couldn't do that in the past. Back when we were God's enemies. Through the spirit of adoption, God has given us a new nature. That's why you can do that, if you can do that. So that the spirit of God now bears witness with our uh, spirit that we are children of God. Don't let that go by quietly. Rejoice in that. Extra application number two, reach out. Reach out. Reach out to someone you don't know, even on Sunday mornings. As believers, and, and, and think about this, as believers across the uh, globe gather together every Sunday morning, many of them seem cold, even unwelcoming to visitors. But if you ask them, you go to these churches and you, and you ask them, almost every church thinks they're friendly. And why is that? Because the members are friendly with their friends. The members are friendly with their friends. They greet everyone who greets them. But the church that shows the love that this text is talking about keeps their eyes open, looking for the quiet person, the new person, the socially awkward person, even the person who seems unfriendly and approaches them like, good afternoon. How you doing? I'm Dave. How do you like the sermon? Or, or 
how did you hear about us? Or is there any way we can be a blessing to you as a body of believers who have been called to be salt and light to a dark and dying generation? That might be too much. <laughs> yes, but reach out. Don't be so quick to run out. Don't be so quick to grab your buddy. But look around. Who seems awkward? Who seems new? Let me look like Christ. Let me look like Christ. Extra application number three. Be relieved. Be relieved. As we seek to follow Christ perfectly, there will be some godly sorrow when we fail. Not a pity party, but godly sorrow. In verse 48 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now why would God say that? God the Father who was perfect in every way, could never set an imperfect standard of righteousness. We will fail in our walk with God, but if your struggles with sin, even the sin of selfishness, not reaching out to someone else, not praying for those who hate you, not even loving those practically with a moral concern to help those who need mercy, if, 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 we, if we're failing in that, be relieved that you care. Some people don't even care. They come and go, I got mine, I'm good. Great sermon, Matt. Great songs. And they're gone. I got what I needed. But if you care that you really wanted to talk to somebody, but you didn't know what to say, they had a mean mug, you didn't want to approach that, but you wanted to. Don't go home. Ah, I blew it again. Rejoice that you care that you blew it again. God will give you the words to say. God will work in you to do his will. This is just more evidence that you belong to God. So rejoice when you're able to love the unlovable. Reach out to the unapproachable. And be relieved when you turn from the unthinkable. Let us pray. Father, for those of us here who do belong to you, Help us to hold on to the reason we should turn from hating our enemies to a disposition of love and prayer. Love and prayer takes faith. So, Lord, we need you to work in us. You alone have the right to hate with an everlasting hate if you should so choose. You know the end of every man, woman, boy, and girl. You know the ones who are your enemies today, but turn from their wicked ways and become your children tomorrow. We were once there. Constantly remind us of the blood that made our reconciliation with you possible. Nothing but the blood of Christ removed the hostility between us. Lord, I pray for those here who do not know you. And I pray you would pierce their hearts. There are so many that we love who are not here, who will one day face the wrath of a holy and perfect judge. But you alone have the ability to take those who are filled with anger, 
darkness, lust, and pride and grant them a new nature, even a new way of thinking. You are able to adopt them into your family and free them from their enslavement to the devil, the world, and their flesh. Please set them free, Lord. Show them what true joy, happiness, and contentment in Christ looks like. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.